How well prepared are police for security threats around the midterms? The question becomes more urgent after the attack on the husband of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and as poll watchers wearing tactical gear stake out ballot drop boxes. Today is Tuesday, November 1st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins in Health News. A new Alzheimer's study involves treating subjects way before the potential onset of the disease. The earliest they can come in is 25 years before we anticipate they would start to develop symptoms. And so for most of these families, that actually puts them in their mid-20s. And they could help reveal what makes the disease take hold. And Massachusetts has seen a jump in calls to the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline since the phone number was changed to just three digits, 988. So often, callers tell us they experienced such relief to be heard, to be validated. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The man charged with attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has a court arraignment this hour in Northern California. NPR's Windsor Johnson says the suspect is facing federal and state charges, including attempted murder for the assault on Paul Pelosi. 42-year-old David DePap is scheduled to be arraigned four days after the assault that left 82-year-old Paul Pelosi hospitalized. DePap is facing a litany of state charges, including attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and elder abuse. He's also facing federal assault and attempted kidnapping charges. According to court documents, DePap told police he planned to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage, calling her the, quote, leader of the pack of lies promoted by Democrats. Local prosecutors are expected to ask for DePap to be held without bail. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Open enrollment on healthcare.gov begins today and runs through January 15th. NPR Selena Simmons-Steffen reports this year more families will qualify for subsidies. It used to be that if your employer offered an insurance option that was affordable for just you, you couldn't get subsidized coverage in the insurance marketplaces, even if adding family members made that employer coverage unaffordable. After a new rule from the Biden administration, if your employer coverage is unaffordable for your family, you can get subsidized family coverage in the marketplaces. Premiums are higher this year, but so are subsidies. Experts say for most people, costs shouldn't have gone way up. It's also worthwhile to check to see whether there are new plans or options where you live that might be a better deal than what you had this year. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. President Biden's using his visit to Florida, one of the most popular destinations for retirees, to rally support for Democrats ahead of next week's midterm elections. He's playing up his health care agenda while bashing GOP proposals that he says would erode Medicare and Social Security and drop price caps on prescription drugs. If Republicans in the Congress have their way, the power we just gave Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices goes away, gone. Republican Senator Rick Scott has said he wants all federal legislation to sunset every five years and require Congress to regularly vote to keep Medicare and Social Security going. Republican Senator Marco Rubio, who's fending off a challenge from Democrat Val Demings, has sought to distance himself from Scott's proposals. The U.S. Supreme Court is telling Republican Senator Lindsey Graham he has to testify later this month before a grand jury in Georgia. That's investigating attempts by former President Donald Trump and allies to illegally influence Georgia's results in the 2020 election. The lawmaker from South Carolina fought to block the subpoena, arguing that his calls with Georgia officials were legitimate legislative communications. The Dow closes down 79 points, ending at 32,653. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the MBTA has announced he is stepping down after four years on the job. The change is effective January 3rd. WBUR's Steve Brown reports. T-General Manager Steve Poftak announced his impending departure in a letter to MBTA staff. In that letter, Poftak said serving as the GM has been the experience of a lifetime. While acknowledging having faced and continuing to face challenges, Poftak wrote he believes in the strength and resilience of the MBTA, adding he takes great pride in what he and T employees have accomplished together. Governor Baker has stood by Poftak during his tenure, despite long-time service problems at the T, including derailments, slow service, and rebukes about safety from the Federal Transit Administration. It was unlikely that whoever was sworn in as the new governor in January would have kept Poftak on the job. Poftak says he will focus the remainder of his time at the T on a transition to a new administration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Electric bills are about to spike for a lot of people in Massachusetts. National Grid's winter rates go into effect today, and the company says the average bill is expected to jump to about $293 a month. That's a 64% increase from last winter. New electric rates for Eversource go into effect January 1st, although it remains unclear how much they'll rise. Natural gas prices for both companies are also increasing beginning this month, with increases expected to be between $50 and $86 a month. If you're planning to vote in next week's elections by mail, you must request your ballot by 5 o'clock today. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says his office has already distributed about a million ballots. Galvin says if you have a mail-in ballot to return, you should put it in the mail by the end of the day today to ensure enough time for delivery. And then after today, he suggests you return it in person or use a ballot drop box. In the forecast, few streaks of sunshine here and there, otherwise just a lot of clouds around this evening. Down around the low 50s overnight tonight. Should have clear skies by daybreak tomorrow and then a nice day coming up. Lots of sunshine tomorrow, highs around 67. Sun's back for Thursday around 63. Could turn even warmer by the time we get to the weekend. 64 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, the head of the U.S. Capitol Police said his agency needs more resources to adequately protect members of Congress in the current political climate. This comes just days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was physically attacked in their San Francisco home. And these events have renewed concerns over the possibility of political violence around the midterm elections. Both NPR's Odette Youssef and Miles Parks have been looking into that possibility and join us now. Hi to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Elsa. So, Odette, I want to start with you. I mean, just how concerned is law enforcement right now about the threat of violence during this election? Well, Elsa, just uh, some context first. You know, we've been building to this concern for years. One really shocking statistic is that in 2021, the Capitol Police reported 9,600 direct or indirect threats against members of Congress. And that's more than 10 times what it reported in 2016. But on Friday, several federal agencies circulated an internal bulletin specifically focused on the risks around these midterms. And the bulletin said that extremists pose a heightened threat during this election cycle, most likely from what it calls lone offenders, motivated by this now widespread belief on the right that U.S. elections are corrupt, 
um, and also motivated by certain hot button social issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights. And targets of this violence could range from candidates to elected officials to voters and could take place at places like Dropbox campaign events and more. And Odette, when you when you talk about threats, is law enforcement pointing to like general vitriol online or are there specific targeted plans for violence that they're focusing on? Well, so far, we're not hearing about specific or coordinated plans, but we are seeing a couple of things that are concerning. Um, First, again, this widespread belief in election fraud combined with the potential calls to violence, which have become, frankly, much more common these last two years. The second concern is about voter intimidation. You know, Elsa, Arizona has become sort of the poster child of this recently because some people were posting up with weapons mm-hmm. in tactical gear at drop boxes ostensibly to monitor voters. And I'll also add, you know, Odette mentioned this idea of this lone offender theme when it comes to violence, but ballot box monitoring and election monitoring is not happening randomly. You know, Republicans nationally over the past two years have really been pushing for this sort of citizen oversight over elections. We saw this a little bit after the 2020 election, but they've really built an infrastructure aimed at pushing this sort of oversight. We're hearing this from candidates at the secretary of state level and also in places, far right places like Steve Bannon's podcast, pushing people to kind of do this sort of monitoring. Okay, so Odette, what should we be looking for as we move closer to Election Day? Well, I spoke to Shannon Hiller about this. She's with the Bridging Divides Initiative at Princeton. And interestingly, she says she's actually feeling pretty good about how things will go on Election Day itself. Even if we look back to 2020, um, we saw very little violence around um, Election Day itself. There was lots of preparation and has been even more preparation by government, non-government groups to ensure that that's the case this year again. So, Elsa, the bigger concern really is the period after voting day. Mm -hmm. Um, Hiller said she's going to be keeping a close eye on places like Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin that are really charged politically, especially if election results are delayed due to recounts or litigation. Okay, so potentially bracing for something. But, Miles, what are we hearing from voting officials on all of this? Well, we're hearing a lot about poll monitors, people who want to be poll watchers who believe conspiracies that the elections are stolen. And that kind of puts local election officials in a little bit of a bind. You know, on one hand, this can be a really good opportunity to educate some of these people and potentially bring them out of some of these conspiratorial rabbit holes about elections. But also, it can be kind of a powder keg if people who are actually involved in the mechanisms of elections believe there is fraud and want to do things to try to, you know, find that fraud. I talked about that with Spencer Overton, who's a voting expert at George Washington University. It's not about service. It's not about volunteering, but is about political activism and vindicating an election from a couple of years ago that can result in a real conflict. All of this can also have this effect of voter intimidation that Odette mentioned earlier. You know, even in the many places where these sorts of things aren't happening, voters are seeing headlines about them and potentially could say, oh, no, you know, maybe I won't go cast my ballot just because I don't want to bother with the trouble. Right. Well, Odette, we've been talking all along about concern around this midterm election that said midterms are at least historically less charged than presidential elections. So I'm wondering, like, are extremism experts already looking ahead to 2024? 
Yes, I mean, many of them have been calling these midterms a dry run for 2024, Elsa, in terms of testing what people will be able to get away with when it comes to confronting people at voting booths or at polling stations. But, you know, they also say it could be a dry run for people who want to protect democracy, too. So, you know, law enforcement, government institutions, everyone committed to protecting our democratic norms. That is NPR's Odette Youssef and Miles Parks. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a fact. Since the 1970s, crash test dummies have been used to test for car safety. And here's another fact. Those dummies are modeled on men. Only men. Average male build, average male weight. Sometimes in lieu of a female dummy, researchers use a smaller version of the male one, about the size of a 12-year-old girl. Well, a team of Swedish engineers is working to change this. Astrid Linder leads the team. She joins us now on the line from Sweden. Hi there. Welcome. Hi there. What's the difference from the male dummy? First of all, the height and weights. And also this model has uh, is developed specifically for for low severity rear impacts. So we have a, a very strong focus on, on how the torso look like. And there we have some geometrical dis- differences between males and females, but we also have differences in joint stiffnesses. And females have less muscles and with the lower total strengths, which, which correspond to a lower stiffness between the joints. I mean, we do have data on how women's injuries in car accidents may differ from men's. What is some of that? Yeah, the biggest difference is when it comes to like uh, whiplash injury low, uh, from low severity crashes. And there we, we know since the late 60s that females have a higher risk of these injuries than males. But we also know from, from higher severity crashes that females have a higher risk of severe injuries as uh, drivers in, in frontal impacts. Have you been able to run tests yet with the new female dummy you have developed? Yeah, we have run tests both with the male and the female because they come as a, as a pair, of course. What have you found? Uh, we did test with different seats and there we found that you could get quite different performances of of the different seats depending on if it was the male or the female that were in these seats. Some seats are very robust uh, and, and others were less robust. And in what ways? I'm just trying to understand exactly what you're finding with this new dummy. When you say some were more robust, how so? Yeah, when you look at loading to the neck, you would look at how the head moves relative to the torso dynamically. So it's a rear impact where you aim to have the head and the torso as much in line with each other as possible. And that is affected by how the body interacts with the seat back. Why has this taken so long? Yeah, and we're still not there yet. (laughs) I think one reason might be that in the regulatory test, it says specifically that you should test with an average male. So even if you would like as a car manufacturer to to show what you have done, uh, you cannot. So what is the next step? Because it's one thing to have a crash dummy that might tell us more about how a woman's body would respond Mm -hmm. in a crash. It's another thing for safety regulators to say, okay, we need to have this required for new vehicles. Yeah, 
And and I think uh, many new vehicles uh, do provide good safety for both men and women. So the trick here is to actually assess that. So then it would require that it says in the regulation that you should use a model both of an average male and an average female. And today regulation tells you that you should use a model of an average male. Full stop. We have been speaking with Astrid Linder. She's a professor of traffic safety at the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute. Astrid Linder, thank you. Thank you. So interesting. Well, I look forward to continuing to follow your work and what you find, <laughs> and I'm so glad you're doing it. <laughs> yes, but thank you for reaching out, and I, I hope that, you know, we, we these small things all contribute to that we will, uh, yeah, within our lifetime, have an inclusive uh, regulation and not exclusive regulation. Amen to that. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Thank you. It has been almost nine months since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. Tactics have changed and gotten more high-tech. We're like constantly shelled and you just don't know if you're going to like survive. It actually is quite heavy on, on your mind. So you just trust that this isn't your day, just not yet. And the front lines have shifted south. Kherson is very important for Russia and also for Ukraine. A look ahead at the battle for the city of Kherson on today's Consider This podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a new study finds that many physicians do not want patients with disabilities. That story just ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Waltham Open Studios. Learn about art making and visit more than 80 artists in four buildings on Moody Street in the heart of Waltham, November 5th and 6th. And Newton Country Day, a sacred heart school preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. Stocks finished lower for this first day of November. The Dow lost a quarter of a percent to 80 points to close at 32,653. S&P fell four-tenths of a percent to close at 38.56. The Nasdaq gave up nearly a full percent to finish the day at 10,891. The stock price of Danvers-based Abiomed soared today. The medical device technology company said it would be acquired by Johnson & Johnson. The deal is valued at just over $16.5 billion dollars. Abiomed shareholders will also get financial perks if certain commercial and clinical milestones are achieved. The stock rose nearly 50 percent today. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. 
In the forecast, clouds are breaking up in a few areas. Should make a total exit overnight tonight. Lows about 52. Tomorrow, sunshine a little bit warmer than it has been today, about 67 degrees. Thursday, bright skies dipping to 63 and then flirting with the upper 60s to about 70 degrees on Friday. 64 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Lisa Izoni uses a wheelchair to get around, which I mention because it is relevant to this next story about a new study that finds some doctors don't want patients with disabilities. In a series of anonymous interviews with 22 U.S. doctors, some admitted to refusing care to people with disabilities, making the excuse that they weren't taking on new patients. One specialist called them a disruption to the practice. Other physicians reported sending people in wheelchairs to supermarkets or zoos to take their weight, saying they lacked the right equipment in their offices. Well, these findings appear in the journal Health Affairs, and Lisa Izoni is the senior author. She's a doctor herself and a professor of medicine at Harvard. Dr. Izoni, welcome. Thank you for having me. How did this study come about? I have been working on disparities in healthcare for people with disabilities for about 20 years. Mm -hmm and had interviewed probably 300 people with different types of disabilities. And through all those interviews, I kept hearing complaints about doctors. You know, doctors don't understand their lives, don't understand their health problems, don't recommend services to them. And so I finally decided after 20 years of talking to patients, it was time to talk to doctors. And, you know, since I'm on a Zoom screen, they couldn't see the fact that I was sitting in a wheelchair. And so I tried to kind of keep aspects of my identity free from them. And as they started saying some of the things that were a little bit troubling, I just said, hmm, that's interesting. Tell me more. And they did. And what, what were they saying? Give me some examples of what you heard. Well, they were talking about how um, they found patients with disabilities to be entitled to want accommodations that the physician didn't think that they needed, to come in with kind of an attitude, if you will. But also physicians talked about the fact that they didn't feel equipped to be able to care for these patients who were coming in. It was a virtually universal statement that they didn't have, you know, the exam tables or the weight scales. Um, and in one case, a rural physician said that the patients couldn't even get into the office because of barriers to accessing the office. So there were just a lot of concerning things about feeling unequipped in addition to not feeling they had enough time to do so. And before we get to what might be informing that, I just I, I want to better understand, we've, we've been talking about wheelchairs and people who have mobility issues getting into and yes. out of an office. What, what other accessibility issues came up? 
Oh my goodness, communication was a really big thing. Um, you know, doctors kind of say, well, if my patient is hard of hearing, I just talk to their companion. There was virtually no interest in doing something like hiring an American Sign Language interpreter if somebody was deaf and that was their preferred mode of communication. And so um, that was also true for people with intellectual disability, that although best practices to speak directly to the person with intellectual disability, mm -hmm. no, these doctors said that they would speak to the companion or the person accompanying the patient. Yeah. As a doctor yourself, how surprising is this? It It is very concerning because the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990, and so we've had literally decades to set up the system to be able to care equitably for people with disabilities, but it just still hasn't happened. All right. I mean, just to underscore what you're saying, physicians can't legally discriminate against people with disabilities because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's exactly right. They are supposed to provide equitable care to patients with disabilities and they are supposed to provide reasonable accommodations. So how is this happening? How are these doctors getting away with turning patients away? Is it just not being reported? What happens, happens behind closed doors. And the patient is lower in the power chain, you know, um, and they also need assistance from their doctor. They don't want their doctor to get angry at them. In addition, it's very, very hard to go up against a professional who will have an excuse. Um, you know, as was described in our in our study, you know, the doctor might say, well, we don't take their insurance or another specialist might be better for the patient. It would be very, very hard for the patient to be able to argue against that kind of what might sound like a reasonable statement by the doctor. Plus, it just takes energy um, for a patient to go find an attorney and say, you know, I'm going to bring a lawsuit. Yeah. I want to circle back to a number I cited at the beginning. This was a survey of 22 physicians. It was a small survey, um, a third of whom were rural doctors. More than half described their practices as small, maybe just one or two doctors. Does it make sense, does it make it somewhat more understandable that some of these small practices, rural doctors would have trouble accommodating people with disabilities? For small practices, for practices of one, two, or three doctors, there are tax credits that would be available if they want to renovate their office or they want to get equipment that would allow them to be more accessible to people with disability. One other point that I would make about rural environments is that we know that rural populations tend to be older. And so these doctors are going to be seeing a population that has a higher rate of disability. So any strategies you would recommend to people with disabilities to help them advocate for their own care or even just to get an appointment? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I would say is that when you call to make the appointment, even though some practices that might scare them away from, um, you know, signing you up for the practice, you need to make very, very clear what it will be like to get into that facility. In other words, that you can in fact get in and that there are accommodations that you will need so the practice can be ready and able to care for you when you show up. 
Another thing is obviously we need education and training of physicians. There was one finding that really popped out at me as the most troubling. And that was that 82% of doctors think that people with disability have worse quality of life than other people. And so if doctors think people with disabilities have worse quality of life, that might explain why patients tell me that their doctors don't bother to get them out of their wheelchair to do a pap test or recommend a mammogram because their doctors thought, you know, their quality of life wasn't worth living. And so I think that there still is a lot of work to do. That is Dr. Lisa Izoni, professor of medicine at Harvard. Dr. Izoni, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a pay transparency law goes into effect today in New York City that requires employers to list a salary range for all posted job ads. Boston Bruins are on the road in Pittsburgh tonight to take out the Penguins. The puck drops at 8 o'clock. And in the forecast, lots of clouds this evening and overnight tonight, but then clearing skies by daybreak tomorrow, right about 52 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, look for sunshine, light winds, highs about 67 degrees. More sunshine should be waiting in the wings Sunday, or make that Thursday sunny skies in the low 60s, could reach towards 70 as the week comes to an end. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art BL2 lab space that frees up biotechs to focus on innovative treatments for difficult diseases. Labshares.com. And JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The European Union says Russia is again violating international law by trying to force people in Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014, to take up arms against fellow Ukrainians. From Brussels, Terry Schultz has more. The EU says the ethnic minority of Crimean Tatars is being, quote, deliberately and disproportionately targeted by Moscow now after the mobilization order for Russian citizens that was launched in September. In a statement, the bloc accuses the Kremlin of reportedly trying to force residents of the illegally annexed region to take up arms against fellow Ukrainians. The EU reiterates Russia should immediately, completely and unconditionally withdraw from the entire territory of Ukraine. That's Terry Schultz reporting. Russia's annexation of four regions in Ukraine has been widely denounced by the U.N. and Western allies as illegal and illegitimate. Ukraine, Turkey and the United Nations are not planning for any more grain to ship out tomorrow. 
office after Russia suspended its participation in the Black Sea Grain Initiative. The U.S. is encouraging Russia to get back into the deal, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has gotten more than 9 million metric tons of food out of a war zone. It's one of the rare diplomatic success stories in Ukraine. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says it was working and Moscow is now trying to break it. Moscow doesn't care. Moscow doesn't care if the world goes hungry. Moscow doesn't care if people starve. Uh, Moscow doesn't care if the world's food insecurity crisis uh, is compounded. He says Russia has also launched over 100 missiles in the past 36 hours, attacking Ukraine's water and energy supplies ahead of what's expected to be a tough winter. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street for a second straight session ahead of the Fed's meeting and decision on interest rates. This is NPR. In Tennessee, federal authorities have identified a suspect they say burned down an abortion clinic in Knoxville last year. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN tells us uh, the man's connection to the attack on the U.S. Capitol last year. A 63-year-old from Jefferson City, Tennessee, Mark Reno, was at the uprising around the U.S. Capitol last year, and the head of Planned Parenthood in Tennessee, Ashley Cofield, says that's when the intimidation began. And then two weeks later, shot a firearm through the front door of our health center. So I go back to my statement about the power of political rhetoric to incite violence in our country. And we need to be aware of that. The same man is accused of coming back and burning the clinic down on New Year's Eve 2021. Then he was caught shooting windows out of the federal building in Knoxville in July this year. Reno was arrested but died in custody in August for what court documents describe as a medical episode. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. South Korean officials have admitted responsibility for the country's worst disaster in years that left at least 156 people dead and scores of others injured. The government there facing growing criticism for its failure to prevent and respond to a Halloween crowd surge in a popular Seoul nightlife district. The police chief also acknowledged that officers didn't effectively handle emergency calls. At least 26 of the dead were foreign nationals, including two Americans. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak is stepping down in January. The embattled T director served through the pandemic and a federal investigation that led to the closure of the Orange Line for a month. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. Poftak noted today in a letter to T employees that the Transit Authority kept trains and buses running through the pandemic. Mella Bush of the nonprofit T Riders Union says Poftak is always willing to admit his mistakes and be accountable to riders, but it makes sense why Poftak would leave. The MBTA has things that date back long before he got there. I think the level of stress during these trying times has to be incredible. Poftak said in the note that more work needs to be done to improve the T, but great strides were made to make the T safer during his four-year tenure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is calling for a halt to the efforts to redraw district election maps in the city. He says the process has become tainted. Critics say the current proposal would split South Boston and dilute its political power. Supporters say the proposal would create more political opportunities for people of color. 
The city council meets tomorrow. And in Worcester today, the Baker administration presented the 39th annual Hannah Awards for Bravery by law enforcement. The awards honor the memory of Massachusetts State Police Trooper George Hanna. He was killed in the line of duty in 1983. Winthrop Police Sergeant Nicholas Batana was one of today's award recipients. He assisted bystanders to safety during a shooting last year. Batano then shot and killed the suspected gunman. It's 435. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Academy, a co-ed day and boarding school, grades 6 to 12 and postgraduate. Open house this Sunday. Worcester Academy, your future starts here. WorcesterAcademy.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Clouds have broken up in a few areas. Should make a total exit overnight tonight, down around 52 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny skies, a little warmer than today's been, up around 67. And then for Thursday, bright skies dipping to 63, then could reach the upper 60s to about 70 or even above by the end of the week. 64 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. For 30 years, a theory about what causes Alzheimer's has propelled research into the disease, and now that idea is approaching its day of reckoning. NPR's John Hamilton reports that researchers are launching a study to see whether they have been right or wrong about what is known as the amyloid hypothesis. When Alois Alzheimer first described the condition more than a century ago, he noted that patients' brains contain distinctive plaques. Then, in the 1980s, scientists showed that these plaques were made of a sticky substance called beta amyloid. And ever since, most efforts to treat Alzheimer's have focused on getting rid of the sticky substance. Dr. Randall Bateman of Washington University in St. Louis says that still makes sense. We have 30 years of solid data, thousands of studies that all say this is sufficient to cause Alzheimer's. And yet, a growing number of drugs that reduce amyloid have failed to slow down the disease. For example, Bateman and a team of researchers gave the drug gantanerumab to people with a gene that causes Alzheimer's in middle age. He says an analysis of the drug's effects offered mixed results. What we found in that analysis was that it had reversed the amyloid plaques in their brains some of them to near normal levels. We did not have evidence of a thinking memory benefit. Even so, Bateman thinks it's too soon to abandon the amyloid hypothesis. He says gantanerumab seemed to delay several brain changes associated with Alzheimer's. And in September, a preliminary report suggested the drug lecanemab actually did slow down the loss of memory and thinking. So Bateman thinks anti-amyloid drugs can still work. Penicillin a great breakthrough, failed its first two clinical trials. Fortunately, people didn't say, oh, the antibiotic theory is a bad idea and we should give up on it. Bateman says anti-amyloid drugs may have failed so far because they've been given to people who already had plaques in their brains. 
At that point, he says, it may not be possible to stop the process that leads to the destruction of brain cells. So Bateman is banking on a study that will start treatment much earlier. My prediction is it will work. And it'll work fantastically if we can really prevent the plaques from starting and taking off and those downstream changes from going. My prediction is these people will never get Alzheimer's. If prevention fails, though, Bateman says it could mark the end of an era. Many of us think of that as the ultimate test of the amyloid hypothesis, that if that doesn't work, nothing will work. The primary prevention trial will be run by Bateman's colleague, Dr. Eric McDade. McDade says it's based on the idea that when amyloid begins to build up in the brain, it initiates a cascade of adverse events. These include the appearance of toxic tangles inside neurons, the loss of connections between neurons, inflammation, and ultimately brain cell death. What we're actually trying to do is to prevent that amyloid pathology from developing in the first place. McDade says that will mean starting treatment long before symptoms appear. At the point of somebody having symptoms, we know now that they probably have had amyloid in their brain for one to two decades. Like the earlier study, this one will give gantanarumab to people from families with gene mutations that often cause them to get Alzheimer's symptoms before age 50. But McDade says this time, the team will begin treating people as young as 18. The earliest they can come in is 25 years before we anticipate they would start to develop symptoms. And so for most of these families, that actually puts them in their mid-20s where we're going to start this trial. The study will enroll about 160 people, which is small for a drug study. But because the scientists know the genetic background of each participant, they can predict when a person would be expected to develop amyloid plaques. McDade says that means the team can focus on other markers of the disease, like tangles and cell damage. If we prevent amyloid pathology from developing and these other markers continue to develop and unfold, this would be one of the best ways to say rather conclusively, listen, amyloid is really not what we should be targeting. The study plans to enroll its first patients by the end of the year. John Hamilton, NPR News. How much do you make? Is it more than your colleagues? Do you even know? Well, starting today, a lot of New Yorkers will know. You see, New York City joins a handful of places across the country, like here in California and Colorado, that require companies to post salary ranges for every position they post. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith talked to a couple of business owners who've already made the switch. Trey Ditto is the CEO of a New York-based PR firm, and he's a bit ahead of the curve. About six months ago, he made the salary ranges of all of his positions public. I was sitting in my office and my wife, who runs a company with me, told me that it's live. And it was like a, it's like a roller coaster. Like, you know it's going to be a little bumpy, but you know it's going to be all right. Ditto says he prepared for that moment for a couple of years, looking at everyone's salaries, making adjustments. And even though he'd overseen all those salaries, he was surprised to find a lot of inequity in pay. I mean, we were just guessing. And there is no way that, like, bias didn't seep in. Statistically speaking, women, people of color, and LGBTQ workers are paid less, often 20, 30, 40 percent less than white male colleagues. They also tend to ask for raises far less often. Ditto said hiring and pay had happened on a pretty individualized basis. He'd find a worker he wanted and try to make a deal. When he actually looked at the data, it was striking. I looked at that XY axis and I saw that some people were overpaid and I saw some people were underpaid. Um, and I'd say that the, the people that, that had the lowest salaries were, were women. And 
loud white men shouldn't get paid more than like a soft-spoken woman. Ditto says when things are public, you have to create concrete rules, rules that apply to everyone. And then you have to have a lot of conversations where you explain those rules. Money is always a, a tricky conversation because someone's gonna, someone sees that salary range and they say, I'm at the low end of this range. Uh, and, and I want to be at the, 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 the top end of the range. So have you lost workers over that? Yes. You lost? Yes, we have. Oh, but more often, says Ditto, there are conversations about how people can improve, how they can get where they want to go. Conversations that are easy to avoid if you don't have to have them. Ditto says the change has been difficult, time-consuming, and expensive. But he says workers have become more productive and retention has gone up. The more information the employee has, <laughs> the more likely they are to work even harder and be more productive. It's because if I can see the top of the mountain, then I know that I can get there. Pay transparency laws are already in place in Colorado, California, Rhode Island, Washington State. And some employers have gone a step further. Molly Moon Neitzel owns a chain of ice cream shops in Seattle. She has around 200 employees. About five years ago, she started making the salaries of every single worker visible to all employees. Neitzel says for more than a year and a half, she and her team prepared for that moment. She actually sat down with everybody. I sat down and had coffee with all of our employees that fall, which was 88 coffee dates in two weeks. I was very Why did you do that? caffeinated. Well, because a lot of people, because we're messing with people's pay and that's really sensitive. Moon says she's glad to see these laws happening in New York City and elsewhere, though she's not surprised there has been some resistance. The people in power want to stay in power. That's not surprising. That's American history. Also not surprising, companies finding lots of loopholes in the new rules. For one thing, the salary ranges aren't hard and fast. Employers can stray outside of them. Also, other forms of compensation like bonuses don't have to be disclosed. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered. A deal between two of the nation's biggest book publishers will not go through. Yesterday, a federal judge blocked Penguin Random House from buying its rival, Simon & Schuster, arguing the merger could substantially hurt competition. Well, Alexandra Alter covered the trial for the New York Times. Uh, and before we jump in, I should mention that I have published two books with Simon & Schuster, but I am now with a different publisher, Alexandra Alter. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. How surprising is this ruling? This ruling was extremely surprising for anyone who maybe hadn't been paying attention to the trial. Um, there has been a ton of consolidation in publishing happening for decades. It's completely transformed the industry, and nothing has been challenged for a long time by the government. So there hasn't been a lot of scrutiny. But during the three-week trial in August, it was pretty apparent to people who were following it closely that the judge, Florence Pan, was pretty sympathetic to the Justice Department's arguments that this deal would be terrible for competition in the industry and could ultimately harm authors. And she had a lot of kind of detailed questions and pointed ones for Penguin Random House as they tried to defend this deal as something that would be great for authors and would actually help them. Okay, let me let me focus on what the Justice Department case was, because as you note, they were all about the harm that this merger, in their view, would do to authors. And they brought in big guns. They had Stephen King there testifying as a witness for the government. Just briefly lay out what the Justice Department's case was. So their case was pretty unusual because 
you know, antitrust for decades has really been focused on harm to consumers. That's sort of where the government tries to step in to make sure that prices don't go up for consumers when companies get too big. But the Justice Department here made no allegation of harm to consumers. They were looking at authors and author earnings. So in a way, the authors are the suppliers of the books to the publishers and the publishers are buying them. And their contention was, if there are fewer publishers competing for these books, they don't have to pay as much. When you look at authors' earnings being reduced, that could result in fewer books being written and fewer books being published and fewer kind of ideas circulating. So hmm. it was interesting. It's also interesting that in a case with such high stakes for publishing and for readers, that readers were not really, it sounds like, much of a focal point at all. It was all about the business. Exactly. They didn't make any claim that, you know, if the number of big publishers goes down, the price of books will go up. That wasn't part of the case. Hmm. How are Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster responding? They immediately said they disagreed strongly with the opinion and that they plan to uh, request an expedited appeal. Okay, so more twists and turns to come, it sounds like. Big picture, you write that this case marks a victory for the Biden administration and its more aggressive approach to antitrust enforcement. So what are you watching for next? So a lot of people in the publishing world um, say that this could open up the possibility of, or a path for the government to perhaps bring some kind of antitrust claim against Amazon, hmm. um, which has uh, an incredible amount of control over books on the retail side. And so they say the same argument that was laid out in this case could be then applied to Amazon. And I think that's what you're going to see a lot of people and organizations in the publishing world advocating for next. Alexandra Alter writes about publishing and the literary world for The New York Times. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, author Louise Kennedy on her debut novel, Trespasses. Checking sports, the Bruins are on the road in Pittsburgh tonight to take on the Penguins. The puck drops at 8 o'clock. And suspended Boston Celtics coach Ime Udoka may be about to land a new coaching job. ESPN reports the Brooklyn Nets are likely to hire Udoka to lead the team. Today, the Nets fired their coach Steve Nash. In September, the Celts suspended Udoka for violating team policy. Multiple media reports that he had an improper relationship with the team subordinate, whom he previously directed crude language toward. We have the forecast coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BackBay Life Science Advisors, strategy consulting and investment banking services for global life science companies, bblsa.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Want to stay updated on the upcoming WBR events at City Space and throughout greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. WBUR supporters include Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite, toddler to grade 8, inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. The global hospitality company Delaware North had just shy of $3 billion in revenue last year, which is down from the before time. In 2019, 
we had about 48,000 people on the payroll. Uh, at the peak of the pandemic, we had 900. I'm Kai Rizdal. What a multi-billion dollar company says about the labor market and inflation today. That story next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR. As all things considered, I'm Lisa Mullins. More than three months ago, 988 became the national hotline number to call if you're feeling suicidal or having a different mental health crisis. There are five centers in Massachusetts that answer calls from the National Lifeline. They have state and federal support. State public health officials say calls to those centers have gone up 30 percent since 988 took effect. And two people from two of those centers say 988 has made a real difference. Kathy Markey is executive director of Samaritans in Boston, and Christine Rizza is training development manager for Samaritans South Coast. It covers the Fall River and New Bedford areas. Rizza told us recently that the center has seen an especially sharp rise in people reaching out for help. From April 1st until July 16th, we had 754 calls. July 16th to today, we have received 2,639 calls. So it has increased dramatically. Since 988 started, that is a huge increase. Is that because more people are actually calling in? We know that there was more evidence of mental health crises during the pandemic, or is it that you're getting more calls coming in from around the nation, that they're being funneled to your center? They funnel them to the closest center from where the person is calling. A lot of people who are calling are saying, you know, they're trying this number out for the first time. Um, They wanted to see what it was all about. So it's getting a lot of new people that didn't previously call in with the long 800 number. And is that just because this is easier to remember, the 988, or um, Kathy from Samaritans in Boston, is it that there is a lot of publicity around this so people know there is some place to call? What do you think is behind it? Probably a combination. It's certainly easier to remember. There has been all kinds of promotion, although we still think there's more to be done, you know, that we'll see a further increase as promotion continues. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, more people are looking for ways to find support for mental health concerns. We know, and Christine, maybe you can answer this, that suicide lifeline call centers are traditionally staffed mostly by volunteers, and they are often understaffed, in fact. But your organization on the South Coast prepared for a rise in calls as soon as you knew 988 was coming. Uh, What did you do? We were three staff members at that point, and we had to hire overnight staff managers and people to take calls all day long. So we are now at about 45 people and bringing on a brand new group of people. Um, We have about 14 people coming through in our November training. So wait, this is because you knew that you were going to be getting more calls? Yes. And for those people who are in danger of harming themselves, what do you do? What can you do, Kathy? So one of the things we do on every call, and all I believe all the centers are the same in this, that you know we establish the connection and and the compassionate listening and non-judgmental uh, listening validation of what they're experiencing. We assess for risk of suicide, and then depending on the level of risk, we have a rate of about ninety percent 
of de-escalating imminent risk callers. So being able to safety plan with them and come up with a way for them to stay safe. You mean 90% of those who call in who seem at imminent risk, the person answering the phone is able to defuse that? Yes, exactly. How? Through that conversation, right, which is sometimes discussing ways for them to access support or help outside of the helpline. So is it call a therapist, call a friend, call a family member, go to the emergency room. Christine, there was some misinformation that was put out on social media that incorrectly claimed that if you call 988, then police or an ambulance will automatically be dispatched as if you're calling 911. To set the record straight, that only happens in a very small percentage of calls. Do you hear from people who call in that they're worried someone's going to show up at their front door? Oh, absolutely. The only time we send the police or rescue is if they, number one, agree, and it's an imminent situation, or if they are in the act of completing suicide, or in that act, possibly harming somebody else. But we are, you know, very confidential. People can tell us things, and there will be no repercussion Who are the people you fear are not calling 988 for support, and why don't they call? Kathy, maybe you can answer that. Um, I think that people don't call often because, you know, we can be hard on ourselves, right? Thinking that, you know, my problem's not big enough or my struggle isn't one that someone could help with. But so often callers tell us they experienced such relief to be heard, to be validated, Oftentimes, you know, when we reach out to a friend or family member, when we have a problem, our friends and our family are trying to help us solve the problem, right? They're trying to help us feel better. But our centers are not designed to help you problem solve, but rather to say, in this moment, how you're feeling is valid. And we want to provide that opportunity for people to, you know, unburden that struggle that they're managing alone. Christine, what's your experience? My experience is when people call this line and they get somebody who is listening, compassionate, empathetic, not putting in their opinions, it's amazing how well that can work for somebody. Too often, there is a stigma around talking about the thing that is bothering you, the bad thing, or they may have worn out the people in their circle with their problems. They can call us anytime, as many times as they want to get that out. Thank you very much for speaking with us, Christine Rizza of Samaritan's South Coast and Kathy Markey of Samaritan's Inc. in Boston. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you care about is having a mental health crisis, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work. At jhpiego.org. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a 
plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Central Square Theater with The Chinese Lady, inspired by the true story of the first Chinese woman to step foot in America. Begins November 10th, centralsquaretheater.org. And Farmers to You. You can feed your family organic produce, pasture-raised meats, dairy, and more from Vermont all year round. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Gasoline prices are high, and so are the earnings for big oil. ExxonMobil had their best quarter to date. Chevron and ConocoPhillips, two other major U.S. companies, have also posted very, very high profits. President Biden is threatening a so-called windfall tax if the industry doesn't give consumers a break. It's Tuesday, the 1st of November. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also had the Supreme Court says Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before a grand jury in Georgia. Brazil's President Bolsonaro has finally broken his silence about the presidential election results. And there's a growing trend of local politics in America becoming nationalized. Our current political system has us in a groove where we focus on a set of easily available and accessible issues that are prominent and resonant across the country. How local issues get a lot less attention than they used to coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines and the forecast are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court is ruling today Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before a special grand jury in Georgia. He's been subpoenaed for questioning later this month about allegations that then-President Donald Trump tried to interfere with Georgia's ballot count after the 2020 election. More from NPR's Nita Totenberg. Graham filed an emergency request last month asking the Supreme Court to block the subpoena. He claimed that under the Constitution's speech and debate clause, he was immune from testifying. The purpose of that clause is to shield legislators from unwarranted intrusions into their legislative duties by other branches of government. But today, the Supreme Court ruled against Graham, saying the lower courts had sufficiently limited the range of questions Graham can be asked. The court's action, with no noted dissent, means Graham will have to answer questions about his communications and coordination with the Trump campaign regarding its post-election efforts in Georgia to pressure election officials into nullifying large numbers of votes cast. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The first day of victim impact statements as wrapped up in the case of Parkland school shooter Nicholas Cruz and for the families of the 17 children and staff members he is convicted of killing. After a jury spared Cruz the death penalty last month, today in a Fort Lauderdale courtroom, family members of the victims variously wished him a painful death and called him a coward for the 2018 school massacre. The hearing, which continues tomorrow, was a chance for families of the victims to address Cruz directly for his formal sentencing, which will require him to spend life in prison. 
President Biden is making last-minute campaign stops in Florida today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports with one week until Election Day, Biden is reiterating the importance of protecting Social Security and Medicare. Speaking in Fort Lauderdale, President Biden said Social Security and Medicare benefits have been rock-solid guarantees that millions of Americans have earned. They deserve to retire with dignity and peace of mind. And that's, uh, that's how it should be in the United States of America. Some of you are so on Social Security or your parents or your grandparents are. They earned it. Biden and congressional Democrats have repeatedly accused Republicans of trying to slash Social Security and Medicare. Earlier this year, Florida Senator Rick Scott unveiled a proposal to put all government programs, including Medicare, up for renewal every five years. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. U.S. companies were still hiring in September, even as prices of goods remain high in the interest rate setting Federal Reserve. Shows no signs of backing off in terms of aggressive rate hikes. Fed's been trying to tamp down wage growth, but with 1.9 job openings for every unemployed worker, that may not be happening anytime soon. The Dow was down 79 points today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak is stepping down. Poftak has led the agency for four years. He told employees today that January 3rd will be his last day. That's two days before a new governor takes office. Poftak has led the MBTA through the pandemic and more recently through a federal investigation that found major safety issues at the T. Poftak acknowledged the ongoing challenges, but said he's proud of the agency's accomplishment, including the Green Line Extension Project and the modernization of the bus fleet. The CEO of Eversource is asking the Biden administration to be prepared to use emergency powers to help New Englanders out this winter. CEO Joe Nolan says a number of generating plants in the region don't have stable fuel supplies, and he says he's concerned there could be an energy shortage in the event of severe winter. He's asking the president, if needed, he says, to suspend the rule that bans foreign flagships from delivering liquefied natural gas to American ports. There are multiple ships in the Gulf that are foreign flag that are you know, picking up American LNG and leaving the country. So I'm asking that the president, should an emergency occur, uh, to waive that uh, requirement. Nolan is also asking the president to make federal oil reserves available to power generators in New England if we get hit with long cold snaps. The White House has not responded to a request for comment. Meanwhile, Governor Charlie Baker is asking the Biden administration for more help in dealing with asylum seekers from the Caribbean. Baker says the current immigration system does more to support people from Afghanistan and Ukraine than those from Haiti and Cuba. Baker has sent a letter to the administration that asks for the federal government to expedite the granting of work permits so new arrivals can support their families. Local officials have criticized Baker's administration recently for housing migrants in hotels in Plymouth and Kingston, Mass. The state says it's doing so because of a crunch in the emergency shelter system. And Worcester's regional airport has welcomed its one millionth passenger since 2013. Today, that lucky person was awarded two round-trip airline tickets. Massachusetts Port Authority assumed ownership of the airport in 2010. Today, it's home to three major airlines with direct service to New York City and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. In the forecast, lots of clouds around this evening. Temperatures in the low 50s overnight tonight. Should have clear skies by dawn tomorrow with a sunny second day of the month up around 67 degrees. Thursday, sun's back. Highs around 63. Could break 70 by the weekend the way things look right now. This is WBUR, still 64 degrees now at 5.07.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. This moment of worldwide inflation has not been good to many people. It has been good to the petroleum industry. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent gas prices skyrocketing this year. They have come down a bit since this summer, but now oil companies, including Chevron, Exxon, BP, Shell, they are reporting record profits. And President Biden has a problem with that. Rather than increasing our investments in America or giving American consumers a break, Their excess profits are going back to their shareholders and they're buying back their stocks, so the executive pays are going to skyrocket. Give me a break. Enough is enough. Biden and his advisors are warning oil companies they could face a so-called windfall tax on their profits. Well, I want to bring in historian and oil analyst Gregory Brew of Yale University. Hi there. Hello. Thanks for having me. So just how big are these profits? Like how far outside the norm? They're pretty big. Uh, Exxon just declared their best quarter ever. ExxonMobil had their best quarter to date. Chevron and ConocoPhillips, two other major U.S. companies, have also posted very, very high profits uh, compared not only to last year, but in previous years. So it's true. Major U.S. oil companies are enjoying very, very high profits at the moment. I I will make the obvious point that major oil companies are for-profit companies. Do they have a responsibility, as we just heard the president argue, to to give consumers a break, to pass on record profits to consumers? Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that these companies are, as you say, in business for profit. They are concerned about delivering profits to their shareholders, but they're also interested in making sure that they have a market to supply. You know, there's great concern in declining demand for oil as more EVs come on the road, as climate change forces policies towards cleaner energy solutions. So I think major oil companies are concerned about making sure that consumers get energy. Whether they have a moral obligation to do so is a little bit more questionable. But I do think the president is hitting on an important theme here, which is that major U.S. oil companies need to be concerned about high prices and about getting prices lower so that consumers can continue to consume oil products. Okay, so a windfall tax, the the idea that's being floated here, how would that actually work? Would it actually work? We're a little bit low on details at the moment. The president and his staff haven't really clarified what they mean when they say a windfall tax. But it would probably work something like this. Uh, The president or Congress would order that the companies either invest their excess profits into new production, uh, take that money and put it into new drills, new rigs to increase oil supply and bring prices down in the future, or they would be taxed above a certain line, a certain excessive profit line, and that money would be collected by the federal government and distributed uh, as the government sees fit. So really, this is something of a ultimatum from the president to major oil companies. Put this money towards something productive, put this money towards increasing supply, or you will get taxed. Hmm. Could a windfall tax backfire? The industry says if you reduce the incentive to make more oil, then companies are going to make less oil, which could actually drive prices up, the opposite of the intended effect. I think there is an argument to be made that higher taxation does discourage companies from investing in future output. 
that would you know cause them to be concerned about future profits. But uh, I'm a little bit skeptical whether a single tax imposed at a specific moment in time where the companies are making far more money than they have recently would really lead to that kind of outcome. How likely is a windfall tax? It would have to pass Congress. Exactly. I would guess that the president getting a windfall tax through Congress is fairly unlikely. There have been discussions around a windfall tax for several years now, but I don't see it passing through this Senate anytime soon. I would also stress that in the past, when a windfall tax was placed on oil companies in 1980, it was part of a raft of policies that were in discussion from President Carter and Senate Democrats at the time. So I would say that this is largely a performative gesture by the president. He's trying to put pressure on oil companies, and he's trying to show American consumers that he cares about the price at the pump. Gregory Brew of Yale University, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. The U.S. Supreme Court today said that Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina must testify before a grand jury in Georgia. A Fulton County, Georgia grand jury subpoenaed Graham to testify later this month about allegations that then-President Trump tried to interfere with the state's ballot count after the 2020 election. Joining us now to talk more about this court's action is NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi there. Okay, can we just step back for a moment? Remind us why Lindsey Graham is getting pulled in front of a grand jury in the first place. Well, after the 2020 election, Trump, as you might recall, was desperate to overturn the election and tried to get Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find enough votes to put him over the top in the state, which he had lost to Joe Biden. Right. And at the time, Graham also made calls to Raffensperger. And Graham reported, and, and, and Raffensperger reported that the senator had contacted him to suggest that mail-in ballots from certain counties should not be counted. All the mail-in ballots, not just the ones where the signature might be questioned. Graham argued that the actions he took following the election were legislative in nature and were related to his role as the then chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He said he was immune to being called even just as a witness, because of the Constitution's speech and debate clause, and that clause is meant to protect legislators from unwarranted intrusions into their legislative duties by other branches of government. Mm -hmm. And then the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which included two Trump appointees, disagreed with Graham and his broad assertion of immunity, and it ordered him to testify, but it limited the kinds of questions he could be asked. So Graham then went to the Supreme Court, asking it to block the subpoena, and today he lost. Um, the justices, without any noted dissent, ruled against him, letting the lower court's order stand. Okay, so after all those twists and turns, Senator Graham is now due to testify on November 17th. What do you think he'll be asked to talk about? Um, the lower court said Graham doesn't have to answer questions about informal legislative activity related to the election um, in 2020, um, but he will have to answer questions about his communications and coordination with the Trump campaign regarding its post-election efforts in Georgia to pressure election officials into nullifying large numbers of votes cast. All right. Well, meanwhile, can you just, Nina, help us keep track of all the other Trump-related <laughs> cases before the court? Like, what else is out there? Uh, the court's also considering whether to block a subpoena from the House January 6th committee seeking phone records of Arizona Republican Party Chair Kelly Ward. She was one of the so-called alternate electors who falsely claimed that Trump had won 
the 2020 election in her state. And earlier today, the Supreme Court, responding to a request from Trump himself, temporarily blocked the House Ways and Means Committee from obtaining Trump's tax returns. And this kind of a stay is called an administrative stay. It just freezes things to let the other side respond, but they don't have to respond until after the election. So the tax records cover the years of 2015 through 2020, but I suspect we won't be hearing about them until, as I said, well after the election. That is NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you. Changing gears now, the hip-hop world is mourning the death of Kirshnik Kari Ball, best known as the rapper Takeoff from the group Migos. Takeoff was shot and killed early this morning in Houston after an altercation at a bowling alley. He was 28 years old. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation. In 2017, comedian and actor Donald Glover called Migos the Beatles of his generation for hits like Bad and Bougie. We came from nothing to something. I don't try nobody to the trick. Nobody call up the gang and they come and get you. The rap trio was a family affair. Takeoff, his uncle Quavo, and Quavo's cousin Offset. They started rapping together in middle school in Lawrenceville, Georgia. They went on to reach the top of the Billboard album charts multiple times. My doggy gon' bite, no chicken. Atlanta-based music journalist Christina Lee interviewed Migos early in the group's career. She says compared to his band members, Takeoff shied away from the spotlight. As I'm talking to him, the only thing he's really concerned about is the music. Lee says it was clear how much Takeoff revered the craft of hip-hop. As Migos were finding success off the song Versace, you know, Takeoff is explaining to me that he wears his Versace sunglasses because he's looking to hip-hop's past, like he wants to model himself after Notorious B.I.G. So you start to see that reverence play out throughout his career. Fans paying tribute to take off on social media are also grieving what feels like a string of violent deaths among hip-hop artists. Comedian Ron Funches writes, We need to stop killing off our natural resources and see what it's like to let rich black men grow old and wise. Something Takeoff alluded to on his solo album with the song Last Memory. I mourn that such frivolous violence has ended your life, tweets Bernice King, the youngest child of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She continues, my heart goes out to Takeoff's family and to all who are devastated by his death. We have a lot of work to do in transforming the culture of violence into a culture of community awareness and care. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. For all of my deceased, the pen of us gotta eat breed. The lot of us gotta eat stink. Twelve pass on feet. Cartel get the bad dirt cheek. Got gab but the tank on eat. No flab but the ice on fleet. No flab. Working out with the bag and receipt. No clout, all facts when I speak. No clout. White rape for the red and black seas. Pulling up like a falcon with me. Pulling up. She gon' faint when she see the double law. When she find out Casper with me. Bad. Small waist, pretty face. Pretty. Having my way. Having, having. She let me on the face. Bam. 
Stay in your place. Stay in your Shut up and stay out the way. Shut up. Decided what I'm gonna do today. I'ma go ride. The You're way. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Parkland School shooting survivors and victims' family members spoke today at a hearing where the shooter will be sentenced to life in prison. Also, the danger of salt water creeping up the Mississippi River and threatening drinking water supplies. These stories and more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com/mos. Stocks finished lower for this first day of November. The Dow lost a quarter of a percent, 80 points, to close at 32,653. S&P fell four-tenths of a percent to close at 3,856. The Nasdaq gave up nearly a full percent to finish the day at 10,891. Details on Marketplace, it starts in just over an hour. Boston-based wireless internet company Starry is considering a sale. The company announced today it's hired an advisory firm to explore how it can raise more money with a sale as one option. Last month, Starry laid off half its staff after it pulled out of a federal subsidy program that aims to expand internet access in rural America. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Mainly cloudy overnight tonight, not too chilly, about 52 at the lowest. Tomorrow, beautiful sunny skies, light winds, highs about 67 degrees. Still holding steady at 64 degrees under clouds now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's been four and a half years since a troubled former student killed 17 people and wounded 17 others at a high school in Parkland, Florida. Today, their survivors and families confronted him in a Fort Lauderdale courtroom. They unleashed their anger at the gunman and at his defense attorneys. NPR's Greg Allen reports. Nicholas Cruz pleaded guilty to killing 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. From the beginning, his defense team had one goal, avoiding the death penalty. In the end, they were successful, convincing a jury that his mother's abuse of alcohol and drugs while she was pregnant with him left Cruz mentally impaired. For many victims of the attack and their families, the verdict was another blow. Stacy LaPell, a teacher wounded by Cruz, told him she was disappointed and disgusted that he didn't receive a sentence of death. The idea that you, a cold-blooded killer, can actually live each day, eat your meals and put your head down at night, seems completely unjust. The only comfort I have is that your life in prison will be filled with horror and fear. 
During the trial, some survivors and families delivered victim impact statements. At that time, they were instructed that they couldn't address Cruz directly or talk about what punishment he should receive. And under Florida law, juries are told they cannot take those victim impact statements into account in determining a verdict. Max Schachter, whose 14-year-old son Alex was killed at the school, said that law was unfair to the victims and their families. He called Cruz a sociopath who got enjoyment from watching people suffer. But he also had scathing comments for Cruz's defense attorney, Melissa McNeil, who he said falsely claimed the gunman didn't receive adequate mental health treatment. It's irresponsible for you to make a statement that is an outright lie. You're making the mental health crisis in America worse by misrepresenting what actually happened to the Parkland murderer. Other families also directed anger at Cruz's defense attorneys. McNeil, Cruz's lawyer, asked the judge and prosecutors to rein in the attacks on the defense team. I did my job and every member of this team did their job, Judge, and we should not personally be attacked for that. The judge refused to intervene and led to an angry exchange between her and the public defenders. Sure will formally impose a sentence of life in prison for Cruz at a hearing tomorrow. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. drought has sent water levels plunging to near record lows on the Mississippi River. Ships and barges are running aground. Navigation has slowed along the busy shipping corridor. At the mouth of the river in South Louisiana, the drought is causing another problem as the salty Gulf of Mexico pushes upriver, threatening municipal and commercial water supplies. As NPR's Debbie Elliott reports, federal officials are trying to stop the salt water. Ducks have taken roost on a sandy strip along the Mississippi River, a bank that's typically underwater. We have this little, nice little beach here that the black belly whistling ducks are enjoying. That's Heath Jones, Chief of Emergency Management at the New Orleans District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He's looking out at the low river from atop the levee at Corps headquarters. The river gauge here registers just three feet above sea level. It's telling us the river's low. It's, a, it's, it's approaching some historical lows that we've had here. More than a third of the rain in the U.S. ends up in the Mississippi River system. Jones says with little or no rainfall coming from the Midwest, there's not enough flow by the time the river reaches South Louisiana to keep the Gulf of Mexico from creeping in. That changes the point at which the river and sea meet. As the flows in the Mississippi River drop, the Gulf of Mexico essentially comes upstream. A saltwater wedge has crept along the river bottom nearly 64 miles upriver from the mouth of the Mississippi. It's almost like a triangle. As this flow in the Mississippi River drops, it loses its ability to keep saltwater at bay. The saltwater intrusion is threatening both municipal drinking water supplies in the New Orleans metro area, as well as commercial water users, like oil refineries that depend on fresh water from the Mississippi. The biggest impact so far is in Plaquemines Parish. The Gulf is winning. Benny Roussel is a councilman in Plaquemines, a parish with about 24,000 people and water-dependent industries south of New Orleans. A former parish president, Roussel has been through this before and is trying to keep a positive outlook. Uh, it looks pretty good if you want to catch salt fish. <laughs> you, know, you can catch redfish pretty well north now and some flounder pretty well north. 
It's good for fishing, but it's not very good for, uh, for drinking water. Saltwater has already compromised two of the parish's water treatment plants and is threatening a third. Roussel says local officials are trying to adapt to the crisis. We're bringing in some desalinization units to hook up to the plant to be able to uh, take the salt out and manufacture water in those areas. To save Plaquemines' biggest plant and protect the larger Orleans Parish water system, the Corps of Engineers is trying to block the salt water from encroaching farther, says emergency manager Heath Jones. We are building, um, lack of a better term, an underwater levee. A contractor pumps sand from the riverbed to create a submerged wall stretching from bank to bank across the Mississippi. It's hard to imagine being able to stop water from flowing over a deep dam, but Joan says the dense salt water stays at the bottom of the water column. We call it a saltwater sill, but essentially it's a big mound of sand, a berm of sand that stops the salt water at the bottom of the river. And as it stops at the bottom of the river, the gulf doesn't have the force to push it over the top. The sill is built to allow 55 feet of clearance so big ships can still pass over it. At the bend in the river at New Orleans, a meandering Mississippi has a cool blue-green hue, different than the muddy current that typically rushes by. Saltwater comes upriver to some extent every year, but has only threatened water supplies about every 10 years. The Corps built similar multi-million dollar underwater levees in 1988, 99, and in 2012. Some experts say saltwater intrusion could be a more frequent threat now because the Corps is dredging the Mississippi River even deeper for navigation, allowing the salt water to move in faster. And then there's climate change. You're really tasting sea level rise. Mark Davis is director of the Tulane Institute on Water Resources Law and Policy. The more sea level rises, the more salt water comes in. And in some ways, we've made it easier this year because, you know, we recently dredged the mouth of the river so it would be, you know, deeper so larger cargo vessels can come in. And that just opens the door for even more salt. For now, the underwater levee will remain in place until the Mississippi River has enough flow to eventually wash it away. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, New Orleans. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, despite what Tip O'Neill said, all politics is national, according to campaign analysts watching a new trend. Coming up, how to put local issues back in the spotlight. With so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you don't want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR will keep you informed every step of the way. Keep listening right here for the midterm updates that you need. Clouds from today should make a total exit overnight tonight. Lows about 52. Tomorrow, sunshine, a little bit warmer than today has been, up around 67 degrees. Thursday, bright skies dipping to 63, but then flirting with the upper 60s to about 70 degrees on Friday.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. We are in the final week of campaigning ahead of midterm elections. Today, President Biden hit the campaign trail. He's in Florida, where he spoke about protecting Social Security, Medicare, and his administration's uh, lowering of prescription drug costs. Biden says the GOP wants to do away with it. I wish I could say our Republican friends in Congress made it happen. I truly do, by the way. I truly do, because we used to be able to do a lot of the bipartisan things. The truth is, every single Democrat in Congress voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, and every single solitary Republican in Congress voted against these savings, every single one. Biden is set to hold events later this evening with Democratic gubernatorial candidate Charlie Crist and Florida senatorial candidate Val Demings. Republican Senator Ben Sass just overcame another hurdle in his quest to become the new president of the University of Florida, as Jacob Sadesi of member station WUFT explains, SAS received unanimous support today from the UF Board of Trustees. This new level of approval follows resolutions against the selection process by the student and faculty senates. Much of the criticism towards SAS revolves around his political stances, including remarks against gay marriage and the Chinese Communist Party. Senator SAS acknowledged this criticism after the board's vote. In a community this big, there's going to be a lot of diversity of opinion, and that is a good, not a bad thing. After the vote, the Florida Board of Governors must approve of his appointment before he becomes president-elect. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Sedesi in Gainesville. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street for a second straight session. A new report shows the labor market remains strong, even after the Fed's fourth uh, interest rate hike this year. Another is expected this week. The Dow lost 79 points, down about a quarter of a percent. Tech-heavy Nasdaq down almost nine-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. The first two days of November are dedicated to remembering those who died in many Latin American cultures. Today is All Saints Day in Guatemala, as Maria Martin reports. For the first time since the pandemic, music was heard in Guatemala's Campos Santos. The graveyards where attendance has been restricted for the past two years. But since Monday night, people flocked to cemeteries to decorate grave sites with flowers and colorful tissue paper. Some families brought plates of food for their deceased loved ones, a few dressed in Halloween costumes, an indication of the impact of American culture in Central America. But the traditional flying of giant kites Maya symbols of the connection between heaven and earth also came back, with thousands attending kite festivals in Zumpango and Santiago Zacatepeques. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin. Drug giant Pfizer topped third quarter earnings as its COVID-19 treatment in the U.S. helped overcome tumbling international sales for its coronavirus vaccine. Pfizer's Paxlovid pill has generated more than $17 billion so far this year. But the pharmaceutical company sales in Europe and other emerging markets have slowed. 
Pfizer's new booster dose and expanded access to children has led to a better-than-expected quarter. On Wall Street, stocks finish lower today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the MBTA has announced he is stepping down after four years on the job. The change is effective January 3rd. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. T-General Manager Steve Poftak announced his impending departure in a letter to MBTA staff. In that letter, Poftak said serving as the GM has been the experience of a lifetime. While acknowledging having faced and continuing to face challenges, Poftak wrote he believes in the strength and resilience of the MBTA, adding he takes great pride in what he and T employees have accomplished together. Governor Baker has stood by Poftak during his tenure, despite long-time service problems at the T, including derailments, slow service, and rebukes about safety from the Federal Transit Administration. It was unlikely that whoever is sworn in as the new governor in January would have kept Poftak on the job. Poftak says he will focus the remainder of his time at the T on a transition to a new administration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts nonprofit organizations that receive calls from the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline have seen a 30% overall increase in calls. That's since July, when the number for the hotline switched from the standard 10 digits to an easier-to-remember 988. WBR's Lynn Jolliker has the story. At Samaritan's South Coast, calls have more than tripled since the switch to 988. Training and development manager Christine Rizza says the organization has had to hire more than 40 people to manage the volume. For the last 36 years, we have been completely answered by volunteers. With 988 coming, we knew that we could not guarantee that volunteers could answer for us 24-7. The state is providing more than $17 million in funding to the five call centers this fiscal year. That's up from less than a million dollars per year before the 988 phone number took effect. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. The City of Presidents has a new way for people to learn about its famous politicians and historical sites. Quincy has started a self-guided audio tour that people can access by scanning a QR code with their smartphone. Quincy Tourism Director Dagny Ashley says the tour is for both tourists and residents. The Hancock Adams Common is an award-winning urban landscape. So I think people will find it very appealing to walk around the common and hear about some of the historical aspects of Town Hall, the Church of Presidents, the cemetery that's next door. The tour has 17 stops all around the common in Quincy. If you don't have a smartphone, you can pick up a map and borrow an audio device and headset from the city's visitor center. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Worcester Cultural Coalition. Crocodile River Music brings African music, art, and culture to New England through community programs and residencies. WorcesterCulture.org. The month of November has begun with clouds, but the next few days should make up for it. Tonight's skies should clear by tomorrow morning. Overnight lows about 52. Then tomorrow, sunny and comfortable temperatures in the mid-60s. Thursday should be sunny again, falling a few degrees, but then temperatures should rise to about 70 or even above that by the end of the week. 63 degrees now in Boston at 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. 
and from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro has finally broken his silence. The usually outspoken president had been quiet about his election loss to leftist Luis Inácio Lula da Silva on Sunday evening. But in the last hours, he made a brief public statement in which he thanked his supporters and said he would abide by the Constitution. It wasn't a clear concession, but but it was a critical step for the country, which has been holding its breath to see if the president, who's repeatedly questioned the country's electoral system, would peacefully step down. NPR's Kerry Khan joins us now from Rio de Janeiro to tell us more. Hey, Kerry. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so it did take nearly two days for yes. President Bolsonaro to speak. Did he explicitly accept the election results and congratulate Lula da Silva? No, he did not <laughs> congratulate. He did not even mention the winner of the race, his rival Lula da Silva. He spoke for just about two minutes. He thanked the people who voted for him and asked those who are protesting his loss to respect the law. Os atuais movimentos populares são fruto de indignação e sentimento de injustiça de como se deu o processo eleitoral. So what he's saying is, um, he was referring to some protests, He, the protesters, and he says he understands that they are expressing the indignation and injustice they are feeling regarding the electoral process. And he's insinuating, as he's done repeatedly, that there was fraud in the electoral process. He always says the election officials are biased and rule disproportionately against them. Uh, like you said, there's a lot of concern about whether he will peacefully transfer power, and this nearly two-day silence just heightened those concerns. And while he never, you know, clearly conceded, right after he left the mic, his chief of staff stepped up and said that he has been authorized to head up the transition process and referred to De Silva as president, so that mm. was the official concession. Got it. Okay, meanwhile, what's going on with all these, like, truck blockades from Bolsonaro supporters? Truckers who are supporters of him have been blocking major highways throughout the country. They started after the election results. The Supreme Court today ordered the Federal Highway Police to remove the blockades, and more than 200 have been cleared. And I was just at one outside of Rio de Janeiro here, and truck drivers were no longer blocking the highway, but there were a couple dozen protesters wrapped in the bright green and yellow Brazilian flags that were waving to cars passing by. Some of the protests said they believed the election was stolen. One man even referred to former President uh, Donald Trump's claims that the 2020 U.S. elections were stolen. He said, however, that unlike the U.S., these Bolsonaro supporters will take action. He didn't give any specifics. And I did talk to one truck driver who was very upset about not being able to pass freely on the highways, and he said he's just losing money as he waited for these blockades to be removed. I can imagine. Okay, well, what have we heard from President-elect Da Silva today? He, today he announced his transition team. It will be led by his vice presidential running mate, who is a former governor of the largest state here, Sao Paulo, and is known for being a centrist and a fiscal conservative. That pick appears to be sending a strong signal that De Silva is not going to make any radical moves. You know, De Silva beat the far-right populist Bolsonaro with this broad-ranging coalition of people on the left and the center and the right, and now he has to wrangle it all under one government and the choice of this moderate to lend the to lead the transition appears to be a step toward doing that. That is NPR's Kerry Khan in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you so much, Kerry. You're welcome. 
You may know a lot about midterm candidates who are not in your state. You might even be donating or phone banking for them. It's part of the trend of American politics getting more nationalized. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports on how it's showing up in one part of Iowa. On a farm place west of Des Moines at a recent rally for Republican House candidate Zach Nunn, Republican Jack Wharton told me what his top voting issues are. Well, just like everybody else, inflation is right up there. Abortion is way down here, non-existent. I don't care about that. The border, the economy, the military. Nunn is trying to unseat Democrat Cindy Axney in Iowa's 3rd District, which covers Des Moines and much of the state's southwestern quarter. Karen Riley Seavers came to a coffee shop in Panora, a town of 1,100, to see Axney. Her top issues? Woman's choice for our reproductive and beyond that. I think we have to stop and think that what we're really dealing with, bottom line, is democracy. And inflation will not make a bit of difference if you don't have the system that allows you to do the fair voting and to have your voice heard. None of that is remarkable. Voters everywhere are worried about all these things. But that very homogeneity is a sign of a trend. The nationalized politics is one in which the same kinds of issues are resonant nationwide. Daniel Hopkins is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of a book about the nationalization of American politics, the way that local issues get trumped by national-level concerns. Close races and closely divided Congresses can prompt voters to think nationally, Hopkins says. You know, if you think back, at least one branch of Congress has been up for grabs or has actually changed hands in basically every election since 2000. And both parties see this district as potentially pivotal in winning the House. If we don't hold the House, folks, Jim Jordan becomes head of judiciary, begins impeachment proceedings against the president, drags him through the mud for two years so we don't win the presidential election, and we lose it all. That's Axney in an early October speech recorded by Radio Iowa. There, she invoked an Ohio congressman. And that's another sign of nationalization, regularly invoking politicians from elsewhere as villains. Similarly, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo brought a Massachusetts senator into a conversation about inflation at that event for Nunn's house race. Don't let them kid you. This price increase doesn't belong to Vladimir Putin. It belongs to President Biden. It belongs to Senator Warren. Often, the nationalization of politics is cast as bad for voters because it means regional issues like agriculture and economic development get less attention. But then many Americans are understandably worried about democracy. Similarly, many do fear or hope for a federal abortion ban. And when parties so often vote in lockstep, it makes sense to vote based on party. Here's Hopkins again. It's not that voters are rational or irrational. It's that our current highly nationalized political system has us in a groove where we focus on a set of symbolic, emotionally fraught, easily available and accessible issues that are prominent and resonant across the country. Local issues haven't disappeared. They're still one way to show constituents that you're doing your job. Here's Axney in that coffee shop. So now we're getting $5 billion here in Iowa for infrastructure, and that money can be used for our bus system, our trolley system, as we call it, for so many people in southwest Iowa, which is truly a lifeline for many of them. The next day, none appeared at a Republican fundraising event where the star speaker was Arkansas Republican gubernatorial candidate Sarah Huckabee Sanders. 
and she was blunt about the benefits of thinking on a national scale. I hear that all the time when I'm campaigning for governor in Arkansas. She's nationalizing the race. And my answer to those people is you bet I am. Because if you are not paying attention to what is happening in Washington, you are missing what is happening in this country. And if you're, say, a potential 2024 presidential candidate speaking in an early caucus state, like Iowa, nationalizing your race might make strategic sense. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For decades, much of Africa has been locked in a fight against malaria. And now, any small amount of hard-won progress is in danger of being erased. That's because of a species of mosquito that's playing by a different set of rules. NPR's Ari Daniel has more. Early this year, a startling report came out of the city of Dredua, a transportation hub in eastern Ethiopia. It was the first sort of urban malaria outbreak in Ethiopia during the dry season. And for context, dry season malaria in Ethiopia is not something that happens. During the rainy season, sure. In rural areas, you bet. But this was unusual, says Zira Zodi, an entomologist with the CDC. Today, in new research she and her colleagues are presenting at the annual meeting of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, she says the reason for that surge in cases seems to fall squarely on the shoulders, or rather the proboscises, of a relatively new arrival in Ethiopia, the Anopheles stevensi mosquito. You know, it's not a new mosquito to science at all. It's actually probably one of the most well-studied malaria mosquitoes in the world. But it had only ever been found in South Asia and the Arabian Peninsula. Then, in 2012, the East African nation of Djibouti registered a dramatic malaria outbreak. The country was nearing elimination of the disease when it confirmed the first detection on the continent of the new mosquito at one of its ports. Since that year, malaria cases have increased 36-fold in Djibouti in a country of less than a million people. So you can't really talk about elimination anymore in Djibouti. The mosquitoes now shown up in Somalia, Sudan, most recently in Nigeria, Ethiopia, of course, and possibly elsewhere. The research out today focuses on Dredua and shows for the first time what scientists had suspected, that the new mosquito is behind these dramatic malaria outbreaks. This is a mosquito that has the potential to change malaria as we know it. And that's because the insect has a few things that give it an advantage. With typical malaria mosquitoes, we tend to see them seasonally. This mosquito thrives year-round. And it can thrive in urban environments, because instead of relying on seasonal rains or puddles and ponds, it loves to breed in human-made water storage containers. From clean to dirty, from small to bigger. Fitzim Gurma Tadessa is with the Armour Hansen Research Institute in Addis Ababa and co-author of the new study. So because of rapidly expanding urban settings and poor infrastructure, people tend to store water in containers. People in urban areas tend to have minimal exposure to malaria, making them more susceptible. And these mosquitoes are largely resistant to the insecticides traditionally used to treat bed nets and at home. So if we keep doing the same thing, we, we won't be successful in, in targeting this mosquito. 
we need to be innovative. And practical, like simply getting people to put lids on water storage containers. Basically, in the ongoing fight against malaria, the next move is ours. R.A. Daniel, NPR News. And be sure to come back to our show tomorrow when we will take you to a photography exhibit that immerses visitors in sights and sounds of the Amazon. It includes videos of tribal leaders talking about the destruction of the rainforest. Tune in to All Things Considered tomorrow, or you can ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, got some old shoes or shirts or even a mattress you want to throw out? Better not, lest you run afoul of new rules that take effect in Massachusetts today. Our story is coming up on WBUR. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go, so listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medics Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Got a beautiful sunset out there right now. Clouds should continue to break up overnight tonight. Clear skies by dawn. Tomorrow should be a nice day. Sunny and milder than today, about 67 for a high. Then Thursday, sunshine is back. Highs around 63. We could break 70 by the weekend, the way things look right now. This is 90.9 WBUR. Bruins are on the road to face off against the Penguins tonight in Pittsburgh. The Bees are in first place in the Atlantic Atlantic Division. The Penguins are in seventh place in the Metropolitan Division. Game time is 8 o'clock. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Decades ago, the Supreme Court set a precedent for affirmative action. In the context of higher education, student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the narrowly tailored use of race in admissions. Now that precedent hangs in the balance. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Every year, residents and businesses in Massachusetts toss out more than 5 million tons of waste. That waste is dumped into our landfills, so much of it that the landfills are chock full. And some of the waste emits significant greenhouse gases as it rots. So the state has a plan to cut waste by 30 percent by the end of the decade. As part of the effort, it has set new bans on how we dispose of everything from clothing to curtains. Starting today, we can no longer dump out textiles, mattresses, even large quantities of food waste to be sent to a landfill. WBUR environmental correspondent Barbara Moran is here to tell us more. So, Barb, the state already bans some things from the trash, including bricks and lead-acid batteries. The ban that starts today, though, seems to go a lot further. What exactly does it do? Hey, Lisa, that's right. So the state already has this long list of things that you're not supposed to throw in the trash, including those things you said, batteries and bricks and other things like glass and metal and asphalt. Today, they're adding three new things, textiles, mattresses, and commercial-scale food waste. So that means everything from sneakers to curtains to clothes and stuffed animals is now banned from the garbage. 
I've spoken to a lot of professionals about this ban, and I'm just throwing this idea out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe this could be an opportunity for each of us to look at how much stuff we're actually throwing away. How much stuff we're throwing away or how much we're buying in the first place. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So here's Janet Dominance from the public interest advocacy organization Massperg, and she put it pretty well. We know what to do. We don't have to invent anything. We don't even have to spend a lot of money. We just need to commit to a society that moves away from even using the term throw away. So let's talk about textiles and mattresses first, because uh, that seems like it'll affect individuals, not just big businesses. What are we supposed to do with all this stuff if we can no longer put in the trash? Okay, so first of all, you cannot put this stuff in the recycling bin, okay? So you can't put textiles and shoes and, I mean, you couldn't fit a mattress anyway, but you can't put any of that stuff in a recycling bin. Most places where you can buy a mattress will also take your mattress for recycling. Most towns have a mattress pickup where they will take it for recycling. Um, There are also a lot of organizations that take textiles, and I'm not talking about necessarily you know, nice used clothes. I'm talking about kind of ripped up, torn things, right? So old towels and ripped up clothes. Maybe repurpose for something. Yeah, exactly. So people will take that and recycle it, use it for shop rags or stuffing and things like that. So there's a big industry for this stuff. Okay, so if I sneak some shoes in my trash, uh, is the state going to be enforcing this ban? No, the state's not going to enforce the ban on individuals, only on big companies. And they'll do trash inspections and they could fine towns or trash haulers. Although that can only go so far. Uh, I know that Massburg had a report earlier this year that found that 40 percent of the waste stream is now made up of banned items. Um, So does the state need to give this more teeth? Yeah, that's a really great point. So this report from Massburg said the state needs to do a better job um, enforcing and maybe think about making individuals do things like use clear trash bags you know, um, that's what Nantucket does now. And only 12 percent of their trash is banned items. Um, and then when I raised this whole idea with the State Department of Environmental Protection Solid Waste Chief John Fisher, he gave me a really interesting response. He says that one of their goals with these bans on waste is not to just get these items out of the trash, but also to create a recycling industry in the state. So we help ensure a supply of a particular material, say mattresses. And then that, in turn, leverages interest from recycling companies to come in and develop operations in Massachusetts. So let's talk a little bit more about food waste, since that seems like a pretty big piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, (laughs) What what is this uh, new ban or second part of the ban going to do? Right. So food waste is indeed a very big piece of the pie. In fact, it's the largest single item in the waste stream. It's about 21 percent of total waste or almost a million tons a year. And the state already has a ban in place. So any business that produces more than a ton of food waste each week has to divert it from the trash. And the new rule says anybody producing a half ton a week cannot send it to the trash. Is there enough capacity in Massachusetts to handle the increased demand to process food waste and textiles too? So I've been talking to people in the food waste industry who use it for composting or use it in these anaerobic digesters to generate energy, and they really want um, more food waste and a steady stream of it. So they say keep it coming. So will the stricter food waste ban hurt restaurants? Well, 
I had the same question, so I called up Stephen Clark, who's president of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and he said that most restaurants uh, in the state won't hit that half-ton mark. So they don't qualify. Uh, exactly, right. Um, but then he told me something really surprising, that a lot of restaurants were already trying to reduce food waste in different ways, and it was already saving the money because they didn't have to pay to have it hauled away as trash. You can divert food waste, you can compost it, you can donate edible food products to food pantries and food banks. So there's a number of different ways that people can comply with the ban. And so by, you know, doing those type of things, there are opportunities to save money. So I heard about one restaurant that had cut way down on their food waste just by leaving the peels on the potatoes for their hand-cut fries. So there are ways to do this really creatively. So keep those skins on, and they actually taste better that way, too. So true. WBUR environmental correspondent Barbara Moran talking about the state's new bans on waste. You can learn more about where to recycle your old things and see how some food waste is being turned into electricity at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness. With 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds are breaking up this evening. Shouldn't be too chilly overnight tonight, right about 52 with the lowest. Tomorrow is looking pretty beautiful. Sunny skies, light winds, highs near 67 degrees. Even more sunny days should be waiting in the wings. Sunny skies for Thursday, temperatures in low 60s could reach towards 70 degrees as the week goes on. 63 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Experts on extremism are worried about potential for violence around the midterm elections. It's not just the lead up to the election. It's not just during the vote counting, but after. What happens when people don't have their preferred candidate win? Today is Tuesday, November 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. That story is coming up also in a victory for the Biden administration. A federal judge has blocked Penguin Random House from buying Simon & Schuster, which would have merged two of the world's biggest publishers. And Massachusetts has seen a jump in the number of phone calls to the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline since its number changed to the easier-to-remember 988. So often, callers tell us they experienced such relief to be heard, to be validated. That story is coming up. Also, a project to create the prototype for the first crash test dummy modeled after a woman. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. There is still a week left of voting in this year's midterm elections, and already more than 24 million votes have been cast. The majority of the early votes have been cast by mail. NPR's Ashley Lopez has more. According to the United States Elections Project, about 10 million people have voted in person so far, and about 14 million have voted by mail. The states with the most votes cast so far are California, Texas, and Florida. In Georgia, high-profile Senate and gubernatorial races have led to a surge in turnout. About 2 million people have voted there so far. The overwhelming majority of those votes were cast in person. Nationwide, more than 56 million mail ballots have been requested for this year's midterms, a big jump from the roughly 42 million mail ballots sent to voters in 2018. Election Day is this coming Tuesday, but some states allow voters to turn in their mail ballots up to several days after Election Day. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. The man accused of breaking into the San Francisco home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and hitting her 82-year-old husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer made his first court appearance today. Authorities say 42-year-old David DePop, who appears to have been drawn to a number of fringe conspiracy theories, told police he wanted to kidnap the speaker and break her kneecaps as a message to other Democrats. DuPop's lawyer entering a not guilty plea at his arraignment. He faces multiple state and federal charges, including kidnapping and attempted murder. Threats against lawmakers have been at all-time highs. In Florida, survivors and family members of those killed in the attack on a Parkland High School were in court today to speak directly to the gunmen. NPR's Greg Allen reports it's part of a hearing where Nicholas Cruz will be sentenced to life in prison. Cruz pleaded guilty to murdering 17 people and wounding 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. Prosecutors and family members of those killed wanted the death penalty, but a jury last month chose life in prison. Debbie Hickson's husband, Chris, was the school's athletic director and one of those killed that day. You wanted to see the family suffer. Well, no more. We will not just survive, we will thrive. And we will honor Chris and the other 16 beautiful people that you took from us. At the conclusion of the two-day hearing, Judge Elizabeth Scherer will formally impose the jury's verdict and sentence Cruz to life in prison. Greg Allen, NPR News. The interest rate setting Federal Reserve has begun its two-day meeting in Washington. The Fed expected when all is said and done tomorrow afternoon to announce another three-quarters of a percent rate hike on top of a string of other recent large hikes as the central bank seeks to rein in inflation. Fed has raised rates to between three and three-quarters of a percent and four percent. Investors will be closely watching the Fed's end-of-meeting statement to see if there's any indication the Fed will start slowing or lessening the size of interest rate hikes. Wall Street trended lower ahead of the Fed's decision. The Dow was down 79 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftek is stepping down in January. The embattled T director served through the pandemic and a federal investigation that led to the month-long closure of the Orange Line. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. Poftak noted today in a letter to T employees that the Transit Authority kept trains and buses running through the pandemic. Mela Bush of the nonprofit T Riders Union says Poftak is always willing to admit his mistakes and be accountable to riders, but it makes sense why Poftak would leave. The MBTA has things that date back long before he got there. I think the level of stress during these trying times has to be incredible. Poftak said in the note that more work needs to be done to improve the T, but great strides were made to make the T safer during his four-year tenure. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Simone Rios. Electric bills are about to take a giant leap for a lot of people in Massachusetts. National Grid's winter rates go into effect today, and the company says the average bill is expected to jump to about $293 a month. That's a 64% increase compared to last winter. New electric rates for Eversource go into effect January 1st, though it remains unclear how much they will rise. Natural gas prices for both companies are also rising beginning this month, with increases expected to be between 50 and $86 a month. And Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is calling for a halt to proposals to redraw district election maps in the city. He says the process has become tainted. Critics say the current proposal would split South Boston and dilute its political power. Supporters say the proposal would create more political opportunities for people of color. The city council meets tomorrow. 63 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds from today should make a total exit overnight tonight. Lows about 52. Tomorrow, sunny skies a little bit warmer than today has been, up around 67. And for Thursday, sunshine's back. Temperature's about 63, which is where it is right now. 63 degrees in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, the head of the U.S. Capitol Police said his agency needs more resources to adequately protect members of Congress in the current political climate. This comes just days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was physically attacked in their San Francisco home. And these events have renewed concerns over the possibility of political violence around the midterm elections. Both NPR's Odette Youssef and Miles Parks have been looking into that possibility and join us now. Hi to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Elsa. So, Odette, I want to start with you. I mean, just how concerned is law enforcement right now about the threat of violence during this election? Well, Elsa, just uh, some context first. You know, we've been building to this concern for years. One really shocking statistic is that in 2021, the Capitol Police reported 9,600 direct or indirect threats against members of Congress. And that's more than 10 times what it reported in 2016. But on Friday, several federal agencies circulated an internal bulletin specifically focused on the risks around these midterms. And the bulletin said that extremists pose a heightened threat during this election cycle, most likely from what it calls lone offenders, motivated by this now widespread belief on the right that U.S. elections are corrupt um, and also motivated by certain hot button social issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights. And targets of this violence could range from candidates to elected officials to voters and could take place at places like Dropbox campaign events and more. And Odette, when you when you talk about threats, is law enforcement pointing to like general vitriol online or are there specific targeted plans for violence that they're focusing on? Well, so far, we're not hearing about specific or coordinated plans, but we are seeing a couple of things that are concerning. Um, First, again, this widespread belief in election fraud combined with the potential calls to violence, which have become, frankly, much more common these last two years. The second concern is about voter intimidation. You know, Elsa, Arizona has 
become sort of the poster child of this recently because some people were posting up with weapons mm -hmm. in tactical gear at drop boxes ostensibly to monitor voters. And I'll also add, you know, Odette mentioned this idea of this lone offender theme when it comes to violence, but ballot box monitoring and election monitoring is not happening randomly. You know, Republicans nationally over the past two years have really been pushing for this sort of citizen oversight over elections. We saw this a little bit after the 2020 election, but they've really built an infrastructure aimed at pushing this sort of oversight. We're hearing this from candidates at the secretary of state level and also in places, far right places like Steve Bannon's podcast, pushing people to kind of do this sort of monitoring. OK, so, Odette, what should we be looking for as we move closer to Election Day? Well, I spoke to Shannon Hiller about this. She's with the Bridging Divides Initiative at Princeton. And interestingly, she says she's actually feeling pretty good about how things will go on Election Day itself. Even if we look back to 2020, um, we saw very little violence around um, Election Day itself. There was lots of preparation and has been even more preparation by government, non-government groups to ensure that that's the case this year again. So, Elsa, the bigger concern really is the period after voting day. Mm -hmm. um, Hiller said she's going to be keeping a close eye on places like Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin that are really charged politically, especially if election results are delayed due to recounts or litigation. OK, so potentially bracing for something. But, Miles, what are we hearing from voting officials on all of this? Well, we're hearing a lot about poll monitors, people who want to be poll watchers who believe conspiracies that the elections are stolen. And that kind of puts local election officials in a little bit of a bind. You know, on one hand, this can be a really good opportunity to educate some of these people and potentially bring them out of some of these conspiratorial rabbit holes about elections. But also, it can be kind of a powder keg if people who are actually involved in the mechanisms of elections believe there is fraud and want to do things to try to, you know, find that fraud. I talked about that with Spencer Overton, who's a voting expert at George Washington University. It's not about service. It's not about volunteering, but it's about political activism and vindicating an election from a couple of years ago that can result in a real conflict. All of this can also have this effect of voter intimidation that Odette mentioned earlier. You know, even in the many places where these sorts of things aren't happening, voters are seeing headlines about them and potentially could say, oh, no, you know, maybe I won't go cast my ballot just because I don't want to bother with the trouble. Right. Well, Odette, we've been talking all along about concern around this midterm election that said midterms are at least historically less charged than presidential elections. So I'm wondering, like, are extremism experts already looking ahead to 2024? Yes, I mean, many of them have been calling these midterms a dry run for 2024, Elsa, in terms of testing what people will be able to get away with when it comes to confronting people at voting booths or at polling stations. But, you know, they also say it could be a dry run for people who want to protect democracy, too. So, you know, law enforcement, government institutions, everyone committed to protecting our democratic norms. That is NPR's Odette Youssef and Miles Parks. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a fact. Since the 1970s, crash test dummies have been used to test for car safety. And here's another fact. Those dummies are modeled on men. Only men. Average male build, average male weight. Sometimes in lieu of a female dummy, researchers use a smaller version of the male one, about the size of a 12-year-old girl. 
Well, a team of Swedish engineers is working to change this. Astrid Linder leads the team. She joins us now on the line from Sweden. Hi there. Welcome. Hi there. What's the difference from the male dummy? First of all, the height and weights, and also this model has uh, is developed specifically for for low severity rear impacts. So we have a, a very strong focus on on how the torso looked like, and there we have some geometrical dis differences between males and females. But we also have differences in joint stiffnesses, and females have less muscles and with the lower total strength, which which correspond to a lower stiffness between the joints. I mean, we do have data on how women's injuries in car accidents may differ from men's. What is some of that? Yeah, the biggest difference is when it comes to like uh, whiplash injury low, uh, from low severity crashes. And there we, we know since the late 60s that females have a higher risk of these injuries than males. But we also know from, from higher severity crashes that females have a higher risk of severe injuries as uh, drivers in, in frontal impacts. Have you been able to run tests yet with the new female dummy you have developed? Yeah, we have run tests both with the male and the female because they come as a, as a pair, of course. What have you found? Uh, we did test with different seats and there we found that you could get quite different performances of, of the different seats depending on if it was the male or the female that were in these seats. Some seats are very robust uh, and, and others were less robust. And in what ways? I'm just trying to understand exactly what you're finding with this new dummy. When you say some were more robust, how so? Yeah. When you look at loading to the neck, you would look at how the head moves relative to the torso dynamically. So it's a rear impact where you aim to have the head and the torso as much in line with each other as possible. And that is affected by how the body interacts with the seat back. Why has this taken so long? Yeah, and we're still not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one reason might be that in the regulatory test, it says specifically that you should test with an average male. So even if you would like as a car manufacturer to, to show what you have done, uh, you cannot. So what is the next step? Because it's one thing to have a crash dummy that might tell us more about how a woman's body would respond mm -hmm. in a crash. It's another thing for safety regulators to say, okay, we need to have this required in it for new vehicles. Yeah, and, and I think uh, many new vehicles uh, do provide good safety for both men and women. So the trick here is to actually assess that. So then it would require that it says in the regulation that you should use a model both of an average male and an average female. And today, regulation tells you that you should use a model of an average male. Full stop. We have been speaking with Astrid Linder. She's a professor of traffic safety at the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute. Astrid Linder, thank you. Thank you. So interesting. Well, I look forward to continuing to follow your work and what you find, <laughs> and I'm so glad you're doing it. Yes, but thank you for reaching out, and I, I hope that, you know, we, uh, these 
small things all contribute to that we will, uh, yeah, within our lifetime have an inclusive uh, regulation and not exclusive regulation. Amen to that. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Thank you. A deal between two of the nation's biggest book publishers will not go through. Yesterday, a federal judge blocked Penguin Random House from buying its rival, Simon & Schuster, arguing the merger could substantially hurt competition. Well, Alexandra Alter covered the trial for the New York Times. Uh, And before we jump in, I should mention that I have published two books with Simon & Schuster, but I am now with a different publisher, Alexandra Alter. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. How surprising is this ruling? This ruling was extremely surprising for anyone who maybe hadn't been paying attention to the trial. Um, There has been a ton of consolidation in publishing happening for decades. It's completely transformed the industry and nothing has been challenged for a long time by the government. So there hasn't been a lot of scrutiny. But during the three-week trial in August, it was pretty apparent to people who were following it closely that the judge, Florence Pan, was pretty sympathetic to the Justice Department's arguments that this deal would be terrible for competition in the industry and could ultimately harm authors. And she had a lot of kind of detailed questions and pointed ones for Penguin Random House as they tried to defend this deal as something that would be great for authors and would actually help them. Okay, let me let me focus on what the Justice Department case was, because as you note, they were all about the harm that this merger, in their view, would do to authors. And they brought in big guns. They had Stephen King there testifying as a witness for the government. Just briefly lay out what the Justice Department's case was. So their case was pretty unusual because, you know, antitrust for decades has really been focused on harm to consumers. That's sort of where the government tries to step in to make sure that prices don't go up for consumers when companies get too big. But the Justice Department here made no allegation of harm to consumers. They were looking at authors and author earnings. So in a way, the authors are the suppliers of the books to the publishers and the publishers are buying them. And their contention was, if there are fewer publishers competing for these books, they don't have to pay as much. When you look at authors' earnings being reduced, that could result in fewer books being written and fewer books being published. And fewer kind of ideas circulating. So Hmm. it was interesting. It's also interesting that in a case with such high stakes for publishing and for readers, that readers were not really, it sounds like, much of a focal point at all. It was all about the business. Exactly. They didn't make any claim that, you know, if the number of big publishers goes down, the price of books will go up. That wasn't part of the case. How are Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster responding? They immediately said they disagreed strongly with the opinion and that they plan to uh, request an expedited appeal. Okay, so more twists and turns to come, it sounds like. Big picture, you write that this case marks a victory for the Biden administration and it's more aggressive approach to antitrust enforcement. So what are you watching for next? So a lot of people in the publishing world um, say that this could open up the possibility of or a path for the government to perhaps bring some kind of antitrust claim against Amazon, Hmm. um, which has uh, an incredible amount of control over books on the retail side. And so they say the same argument that was laid out in this case could be then applied to Amazon. And I think that's what you're going to see a lot of people and organizations in the publishing world advocating for next. Alexandra Alter writes about publishing and the literary world for The New York Times. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the national hotline number to call if you're feeling suicidal has changed from the customary 10 digits to just 3988. And the number of calls has gone up significantly. That story is just ahead. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower for this first day of November. The Dow lost a quarter of a percent, 80 points, to close at 32,653. S&P fell four-tenths of a percent to close at 3,856. The Nasdaq gave up nearly a full percent to finish the day at 10,891. The stock price of Danvers-based Abiumed soared today. The medical device technology company said it will be acquired by Johnson & Johnson in a deal worth just over $16.5 billion. Abiumed shareholders will also get financial perks if certain commercial and clinical milestones are achieved. The stock rose nearly 50 percent today. It's 622. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Boston Bruins are on the road to face off against the Penguins tonight in Pittsburgh. The Bees are in first place in the Atlantic Division. Penguins are in seventh place in the Metropolitan Division. The puck drops tonight at 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. Should turn clear overnight tonight. Temperatures about 52 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny skies. A little bit warmer than today was. Should be up around 67 degrees. 63 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. This is WBUR as All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than three months ago, 988 became the national hotline number to call if you're feeling suicidal or having a different mental health crisis. There are five centers in Massachusetts that answer calls from the National Lifeline. They have state and federal support. State public health officials say calls to those centers have gone up 30 percent since 988 took effect. And two people from two of those centers say 988 has made a real difference. Kathy Markey is executive director of Samaritans in Boston, and Christine Rizza is training development manager for Samaritans South Coast. It covers the Fall River and New Bedford areas. Rizza told us recently that the center has seen an especially sharp rise in people reaching out for help. From April 1st until July 16th, we had 754 calls. July 16th to today, we have received 2,639 calls. So it has increased dramatically. Since 988 started, that is a huge increase. Is that because more people are actually calling in? We know that there was more evidence of mental health crises during the pandemic, or is it that you're getting more calls coming in from around the nation, that they're being funneled to your center? They funnel them to the closest center from where the person is calling. A lot of people who are calling are saying, you know, they're trying this number out for the first time. 
Um, they wanted to see what it was all about. So it's getting a lot of new people that didn't previously call in with the long 800 number. And is that just because this is easier to remember, the 988, or um, Kathy from Samaritans in Boston, is it that there is a lot of publicity around this so people know there is some place to call? What do you think is behind it? Probably a combination. It's certainly easier to remember. There has been all kinds of promotion, although we still think there's more to be done, you know, that we'll see in a further increase as promotion continues. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, more people are looking for ways to find support for mental health concerns. We know, and Christine, maybe you can answer this, that suicide lifeline call centers are traditionally staffed mostly by volunteers, and they are often understaffed, in fact. But your organization on the South Coast prepared for a rise in calls as soon as you knew 988 was coming. Uh, What did you do? We were three staff members at that point, and we had to hire overnight staff, managers, and people to take calls all day long. So we are now at about 45 people and bringing on a brand new group of people. Um, We have about 14 people coming through in our November training. So wait, this is because you knew that you were going to be getting more calls? Yes. And for those people who are in danger of harming themselves, what do you do? What can you do, Kathy? So one of the things we do on every call, and all I believe all the centers are the same in this, that you know we establish the connection and and the compassionate listening and non judgmental uh, listening validation of what they're experiencing. We assess for risk of suicide, and then depending on the level of risk, we have a rate of about ninety percent of de-escalating imminent risk callers. So being able to safety plan with them and come up with a way for them to stay safe. You mean 90% of those who call in who seem at imminent risk, the person answering the phone is able to diffuse that? Yes, exactly. How? Through that conversation, right, which is sometimes discussing ways for them to access support or help outside of the helpline. So is it Call a therapist, call a friend, call a family member, go to the emergency room. Christine, there was some misinformation that was put out on social media that incorrectly claimed that if you call 988, then police or an ambulance will automatically be dispatched as if you're calling 911. To set the record straight, that only happens in a very small percentage of calls. Do you hear from people who call in that they're worried someone's going to show up at their front door? Oh, absolutely. The only time we send the police or rescue is if they, number one, agree, and it's an imminent situation, or if they are in the act of completing suicide, or in that act, possibly harming somebody else. But we are, you know, very confidential. People can tell us things, and there will be no repercussion Who are the people you fear are not calling 988 for support, and why don't they call? Kathy, maybe you can answer that. Um, I think that people don't call often because, you know, we can be hard on ourselves, right? Thinking that, you know, my problem's not big enough or my struggle isn't one that someone could help with. But so often callers tell us they experienced such relief to be heard, to be validated, Oftentimes, you know, when we reach out to a friend or family member, when we have a problem, our friends and our family are trying to help us solve the problem, right? They're trying to help us feel better. 
but our centers are not designed to help you problem solve, but rather to say in this moment, how you're feeling is valid. And we want to provide that opportunity for people to, you know, unburden that struggle that they're managing alone. Christine, what's your experience? My experience is when people call this line and they get somebody who is listening, compassionate, empathetic, not putting in their opinions, it's amazing how well that can work for somebody. Too often, there is a stigma around talking about the thing that is bothering you, the bad thing, or they may have worn out the people in their circle with their problems. They can call us anytime, as many times as they want to get that out. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Christine Rizza of Samaritan South Coast and Kathy Markey of Samaritan's Inc. in Boston. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you care about is having a mental health crisis, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com.